You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Peace be with you. Um, If you are able, uh, I'd like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. If you have a physical Bible, I do invite you to, to grab that and take a look at that. This is, this is our book as a people, so it's good to, to get your hands on the Bible sometimes, you know. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It'll be on the screen here behind me. Uh, can we go to the next slide? Sorry, that's... The first slide is Proverbs. There we go. That's on me. I forgot to delete that. Sorry. Matthew 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at the banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you are not to be called rabbi, because you have one teacher. And you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father, because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either, because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Fathers, we come together as a people this morning to study your word. We ask that we would have hearts like those in verse 12, that we would have humble hearts as we stand before you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our, our, our mind and our eyes to see what you have for us. We ask that in humility, we would seek to learn from you this morning. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So over the the past couple years, we have been journeying on and off through the book of Matthew. If you remember, the first time we started was actually uh, February, I believe, of 2019. So it's been a long, slow journey. But we're actually entering the final semester of our season of studying Matthew. So we'll be looking up until Easter, I believe, uh, Matthew chapter 23 through 28. So that's where we're beginning today is in in, uh, verse 1 of chapter 23, and we'll walk through this for a good chunk of the semester. 
Um, just by way of reminder, Matthew is, is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He once was a, a tax collector and he was converted to, um, to, to be a follower of Christ. Matthew worked really for, for years on this. So this, many people say, is his magnum opus. It's his crowning achievement. And it is really, it's a masterful uh, piece of just literature, right? It's beautiful the way he weaves themes throughout the book. We know it's written probably around 80 AD, um, so just 50 or so years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it's primarily written to a Jewish audience. So there's a lot of themes in there that, though hard to understand, once we understand them, it helps us to, to really get what the author is trying to teach us. Uh, so the structure of Matthew, just so we know, it's, it's largely centered around five big chunks of teaching. And one of the famous ones that you may know is, is Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7. It's a large chunk of Jesus' teaching, but the book follows these chunks of teaching. And the text we're looking at today, it's a little bit ambiguous as to where it goes. Does it follow or does it connect to chapter 22, which is a piece of Jesus' ministry, or does it connect to, to chapter 24, which is another one of Jesus' teaching blocks? Most scholars, they, they can't quite land on a spot, so they just say, hey, man, Matt, Matthew is a great artist of his craft, <laughs> makes it ambiguous for us. And when he does it, he actually ties it all together. It's like the piece in the movie that you see, it makes everything click. So Matthew 23, is, as we, we get into this, it's, it's kind of an intro of sorts, but it's also a closing of the chapters that preceded it. The passage that we're looking at today, it starts a section of Scripture that is, for what many people say, contrasted to Matthew 5. So if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of language of, of blessed, right? Blessed are the, the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. This chapter that we're looking at today, and we'll, we'll finish up um, next week, has a lot of curses, <laughs> which is a little bit interesting. It's a piece of Jesus' ministry that we often overlook. So today, as we kind of start this intro uh, teaching block here um, in Matthew 23, 1 through 12, here's, here's what we're going to look at. There's, there's three things as we follow the story that we'll see. The first is the problem with the religious leaders. It's hypocrisy. Then we'll see later the warning to the disciples is haughtiness or pride. And then finally, we'll see the way of our God and humility. You can check the, the alliteration box there. I nailed it pretty pumped about it. You can laugh, right? You guys are stiff. Y'all ready? Come on. This is God's Word speaking to us. Okay. I'll have fun. You guys can just sit and watch, I guess. Uh, I'm just kidding. So, so first, all right, y'all get with me here. First is the problem with, with the religious leaders. Okay. We see this in verses uh, one. It starts really all the way to verse seven. And the thing that Jesus is drawing out here is that they're hypocritical. There's hypocrisy amongst the religious leaders of Jesus's day. So Jesus is actually speaking to the crowds, right? We, we know that because in verse 1 it says, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to the disciples. So he's talking to the, the crowds, the people that are just kind of onlookers, and then also his ragtag group of men that he's mentoring. And he's trying to raise up to lead the church forward. So you, you may start by saying, well, if he's just talking to these people and he's talking bad about the Pharisees, is he gossiping here? I, I would say no, right? We, we know based on later context in this chapter Jesus says many times, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. So clearly the Pharisees and the scribes are still around, but Jesus is trying to make his primary teaching point to the crowds, and I would argue more primarily to his disciples, which by extension comes to us. 
So just by way of reminder, who are the scribes? Who are the Pharisees? The scribes, they were, they were the ordained uh, instructors of the day, right? They, they were the, the full-time, if you will, vocational, paid by the synagogue members, right? Um, so what they did is they were the vocational Bible teachers. They, they had knowledge of the law, and at that time, drafting legal documents was done uh, really as a, um, a, a religious uh, what's the word? A theocracy, right? So it's a re- even though it's a law document, it's done in a religious context. So the scribes were these people. The Pharisees, right, who's another group that Jesus is talking about, the Pharisees are just your, your, lay, uh, your lay Bible uh, obedience group, if you will, right? These people, they're, they're sticklers about following every single dot and tittle, they think, of God's law, but they're laymen and women, or I think laymen, excuse me. So they weren't paid, but they're still hardcore religious adherents. They were seeking to follow, as it says in Scripture, the traditions of their fathers. So we'll get to that a little bit more. They were seeking to follow the traditions of their fathers rather than Scripture's. Throughout the gospel, these men are the ones that Jesus butts head with the most. This is what we're, we're used to, right? These religious leaders, we, we know him to be enemies. They're all, they're all bad. Nothing good comes out of them. But then Jesus, in verse 2, he says this interesting line. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. So he's actually recognizing their teaching authority. He's giving it respect. He's respecting their seat, their office, if you will. The chair of Moses, many think, was a, a literal chair that in the synagogue one sat in, similar to a pulpit, right? The religious leaders sat in the chair of Moses, so they would sit um, and preach or teach the, the Jewish scriptures in the synagogue. So Jesus is saying, yeah, the religious leaders, they're there. They're, they're in the seat of Moses. He recognizes their authority. And then verse 3, this kind of catches us off guard, right? He says, therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. Jesus recognizes their authority, and then he says, do whatever they say, which is very different than the way we think of Jesus interacting or we think of the, the religious leaders of the day. We see them only as enemies, right? But it's just so interesting. Jesus is saying, well, listen to what they're telling you and do what they say. But Jesus, he does give a little bit of a a rejoinder, right? He gives some more nuance to his statement. He goes on in verse three, he says, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. So you can think about the classic like parent-child episode, right? The dad says, hey, uh, don't, don't do that, right? Don't, don't get on your phone at the dinner table. And the kid says, well, dad, you're on your phone at the di- dinner table. And then dad says, well, don't do, don't do as I say, do as, or sorry, do as I say, not as I do, right? And kid's like, well, why, dad, why? Well, I'm the dad, right? That's just how it is, right? Dads don't have to follow rules. They just make them, right? Jesus is saying the problem isn't the actual office, right? The problem is not the chair of Moses, if you will. The problem is actually not in all of their teachings, though there are some uh, skewed portions to it. The problem is the fact that they are not living in accordance with their teaching. It's not what they preach that's the issue. It's their practice or lack thereof. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They teach one thing, yet do another. They're hypocrites, plain and simple. Then Jesus goes on to talk about, well, how, how do you see this, Jesus? Where do you see this hypocritical behavior? 
Look at verse four with me. It says, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi, which some most say is the literal translation of my master by the people. So I don't want to rush ahead here into this next section because Pastor James is going to talk about it next week, but what we'll see with these religious leaders, the big issue is that they're, they're majoring on the minors. <laughs> they're focusing on the small things rather than the big things. One scholar, uh, Craig Keener, he, he writes, Jesus accuses them of being too strict with others while being too lenient with their own failings. Again, he said, Jesus accuses them of being too strict with others while too lenient with their own failings. Um, a little while ago, I, I, I forget when it was, maybe last year or the year before, but uh, I read this book called A Little Place on the North Side, which is a book about Wrigley Field, which if you don't know what Wrigley Field is, it's where the Chicago Cubs play, which if you don't know who the Chicago Cubs are, they are an American baseball team. If you don't know what baseball is, it's got a round ball and a big bat, guy throws it, People hit it and try to hit it out of the park, right? There we go. You guys with me? We all good on baseball? Okay, so Wrigley Field is where the Cubs play. Now, back in the 30s, this author talks about the fact that um, when the seats got overflowed in the outfield, they would actually place people down on the floor or on the, in the outfield, right, in front of the seat or in front, of the, in front of the outfield fence. So you can see that a little bit there, right? There are those people out there. Now, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, meaning like, I don't know if it's legit, but if this guy's going to throw it out there. I'm, I'm going to take it and run with it and illustrate a sermon with it. But this author, he talks about the fact that these people that were seated on the ground in the outfield held a rope, and that was the new fence, if you will, right? So again, the boundary for where the home run has to go for my non-baseball people, okay? You get a a run when you hit it over the fence. So there's this rope here. These people are holding on to the rope. What they would do sneakily is when the opposing team, maybe the Southsiders, the White Sox were batting, they would scoot up a little bit, or sorry, scoot back a little bit, right? To make it a little bit further, right? Don't want the White Sox to hit any homers out here. So you get a little bit further back. You got to sneak back so people don't see. Then when the Cubbies were up, they would move the rope forward, an inch forward. I think when we look at the religious leaders of this day, like that's kind of the push and pull that they're after, right? In terms of righteousness, the religious leaders are scooting the fence forward when they're up to bat, and then they're pulling it back when others are up to bat. They're putting heavy loads on people that they themselves are not willing to carry. I think that's an apt illustration of what they're doing. Their, the arbitrary nature of their standard, it, it made great room for their mistakes— but for their followers, <laughs> it made it even harder and harder for them to achieve righteousness according to the law. That's why later, again, we see this. They're, they're majoring on the minors. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus says, You, to the religious leaders, 
pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. He's saying you're giving your tithes and offerings, if you want to update it. You're giving your money to the church, if you want to update it for us. Yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, the big things, (laughs) justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then Jesus, like the wordsmith that he is, he gives a beautiful illustration. He says, you strain out a gnat out of your drink, but you gulp down a camel. Saying you're you're missing the mark, you religious leaders. Jesus continues on, and in verse 8 through 9, it's where we see the warning then to the disciples that, that haughtiness, pride comes with their office of of religious leading. Jesus says in verse 8, you can look there with me, says, but you are not to be called a rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now, admittedly, when you get to this section, it's a little bit of a wily passage, right? Are we, are we to take this literally, right? I can't, I can't call my dad, dad. <laughs> I can't call my father, father. Or I can't call somebody rabbi. Or I can't call somebody teacher in the classroom. Are we to take this literally? Or is Jesus just talking about these specific titles? So we can't say father, rabbi, and teacher, but we can say pastor or deacon. We can say those things. Or is there, is there something maybe a little bit beneath the surface that Jesus is trying to get at? I think if we dig below, we'll see really the spirit of the law rather than rigid adherence to the, um, the letter of the law, if you will. Now, I, I never want to excuse or, or scoot us past Jesus' actual literal teaching. So I'll say wholeheartedly, I think every person should examine this scripture, <laughs> pray about it, and say like, Hey, if I have these titles, should I, should I use them? I, I think the Spirit will speak to you in that. But if we, if we dig down, I think what's going on here is there's a connection between haughtiness or pride and titles. There's something that can happen when we chase titles as ends rather than means. There's two big things, right? The, the first thing is in the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and even now in the, the church, there's a temptation to usurp or undercut Jesus' teaching authority and undermine his teaching with our own. This is what happens when tradition becomes the new law rather than Scripture. This is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day are doing. They're they're in the seat of Moses. They're standing in the pulpit. But Moses' teaching was nowhere to be found. (laughs) They were using the Bible lectern, but there was no Bible. (laughs) Look, when, when cultural preferences become mandates, we, as the church today, hear me, are no different than religious leaders. When cultural preferences become mandates, new barriers for holiness, we are no better than these men. Here's what John Calvin, the the great uh, reformer says. He says, now the only way to build up the church is for the ministers themselves to endeavor to preserve Christ's authority for himself, for Christ. This, sorry, this can be secured only if what he has received from his father to be left to him. 
namely that he alone, Jesus, is the schoolmaster of the church. For it is written not of any other, but of him alone. Hear him, Calvin says. Another Puritan scholar, Matthew Henry, he says, Christ only is our master. Ministers are but ushers in the school, picking up on the school language. And then fast forwarding to today, theologian Dale Bruner, he says, the mark of trustworthy teachers in the church is the measure with which they defer in their teaching to the teaching of Jesus. There's a lot of preaching and and, and teaching today that is going against this command. Pastoral preferences, (laughs) cultural preferences are becoming mandates. They're becoming heavy loads that people cannot bear. And the reason they can't bear them is because they're not bearing the yoke of Christ. They're bearing the yoke, the heavy load of a pastor (laughs) who is not Christ, right? Jesus says his teaching, his way His yoke is light. (laughs) I'm not going to call anybody out, right? But you go on social media today, and there there is that happening, (laughs) right? There is a lot of of trying to usurp Jesus' teaching authority by having pastor at the beginning of your Twitter handle. So first, the the issue with titles, right, is is that we can usurp Jesus' authority. We can use our teaching titles to become the master rather than Jesus, who's the schoolmaster of the church, as Calvin said. The other issue with titles, right, again, we're digging beneath the surface here. The other issue with titles is that they can create unhealthy and unbiblical hierarchies in the church, They can then become barometers of holiness. (laughs) This is so bad, right? If I or our deacons, (laughs) they think they're holier than the people in the pews, we're doing it wrong. We're not upholding Jesus's biblical structure that he's laid out for us. Here at Sojourn, we believe the scriptures do show a model for the church, right? It's not just some amorphous blob that kind of I don't know, Rome's around, right? It's not anarchy. Jesus gives us order in Scripture. We believe that the church is to be elder-led and deacon-served and congregationally ministered. All of this submitted under Christ's lordship. I think it's hokey, but I have seen churches literally on their org charts with Jesus at the top. Like, I get it. It's, I don't know. I guess you guys don't think it's hokey. We'll do that. We're going to put Jesus at the top of our org chart and send it to y'all. But the idea is important, right? I love that Jesus here, he uses a familial unit to illustrate this point. He says, you have one father, which means you're all brothers and sisters. You see, before all the titles, before all the structure, before all the hierarchies, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Before I'm pastor, I'm John's brother. Before I'm pastor, I'm Khadijah's brother. She's my sister. Before all that, right, we have God, one big F father. He is our father before all those other things. 
We should love each other like family and remember that at the foot of the cross, we are all on the same playing field. I am no better, no holier, no closer to Jesus in a, in a, status, in a status sake than anybody here. Now, we need to be careful, right? There's a spectrum. If you grew up, right, there was the parents who were like overly rigid, who were like too much of a parent, if you will. And then there's the parents who were like just friends, right? We know that the just friend parents always wanted a parent that would parent them. And then the parented kids wanted a parent who would be their friend. There's a spectrum, right? We need authority, but we also need equality in a sense, The same is true in the church. There's not just unbridled freedom to do whatever we want. There is structure that Jesus lays out in Scripture. There are offices that carry authority. But there's also this familial status that comes with being a part of the church that we need never forget. Dale Bruner, again, in his commentary, he says, the various offices in the church do not establish a dominion of some over others, On the contrary, they are for the exercise of the ministry entrusted to and enjoined upon the whole congregation. I love that. What Bruner is saying here is that the offices of church play their part in the ministry. That the whole congregation participates in. Pastor James and I play one sliver of the part of the ministry that our whole church is doing. Our deacons play one small part of the ministry that the whole church is doing. Our community group leaders play one small part of the ministry that the whole church is doing. It's not this clericalism, though I joked about it at the beginning, where like you guys come, you watch me, Pastor James and Christina and Randall do cool stuff, and then you go home, right? We're called to ministry as a whole church, and we all have different parts to play. That's what Romans 12:5 says. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ— and individually members of one another. I love the NLT version. It says, we belong to each other. I belong to you. You belong to me. We are a part of one body. We are one family as a local church and then as a big church, big C church, universally. We all belong to each other as parts of the body. So the issue here, I would say, is not the titles, the literal titles, but the heart behind the titles, it's the motivation driving us to pursue or to have titles. So if we call ourselves teachers so that our teaching stands above the teaching authority of Scripture, or if we call ourselves fathers so that our leadership makes people look to us for their salvation, then Jesus says we're in dangerous territory. We're liable, what he says to the disciples, is to fall into pride. The haughtiness. The reality is this pride distances us from God. Here's what Psalm 138 says. Though the Lord is exalted, he takes note of the humble. But he knows the haughty, the proud people from a distance. There's a wedge that gets driven between us and Jesus when pride befalls our heart. The reason is because we see in verse 11 through 12 that the defining characteristic of the Christian faith is humility. It's the way of our God. We see that in verses 11 through 12. 
Now, up until now, right, it's pretty easy to say yes and amen, right? It's like, yeah, you pastors or you politicians or you business leaders, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. Y'all stink. But before you go off and send this, I don't know, send this sermon to, or this passage to your, your boss or, <laughs> I don't know, your old pastor that was proud, the reality is that we all, every one of us, need to confess our tendency towards hypocrisy, towards haughtiness, pride. We're all this way. Maybe you're not in the chair of Moses or the pulpit or the manager's office, but the issues of the heart are universal. They transcend leadership, they transcend titles. They transcend cultures. So I just want to ask you to consider, in what ways are you like the Cub fans in the 30s, moving the rope forward when you're up to bat, backing up when, you're, when uh, your spouse or your roommate or whomever is at the plate? I've heard it said that we often judge our intentions but others' actions. We judge our intentions, but others' actions. Well, I, I, I didn't mean that when I said that. <laughs> but for someone else, right, it's, well, you said this. I don't care what you meant. You said this to me. So where is it? Where, where in your life are you prone to hypocrisy or, or haughtiness? Pastor uh, Robert Murray Machane, who's well known for his uh, Bible reading plan, he, he says it's the mark of the, the hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home. Can you put that one up, Tabs? It's the mark of the hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home. I'll let you guys take your breath on that one for a second. That one hit me. So maybe, it's, maybe it is at home, right? Maybe you can do no wrong, but your spouse... Our roommate is a horrible, wretched sinner for leaving the dishes in the sink again. How dare they? Maybe it's online, right? It's like, I can't believe Billy Bob keeps posting all that stuff. A true Christian would only passively, aggressively post online, right? Maybe it's at work, Right? I, I can't believe so-and-so is late again. Holy smokes. Second time in, in, in six months, how dare they? I would never be late. Like, and she says she's a Christian, my gosh. Look, we're, we're all prone to hypocrisy and pride. So we need to start by acknowledging that. But then what are we to do? The answer is to pursue humility. <laughs> pursue it. Go after it. Verse 11 and 12, it says, The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what, what does that mean? How, how, do the, how then do I humble myself? The, the answer is to be a repentant, always repentant Christ follower. We as a people, if we are really 
practicing the way of Jesus, we should always be repenting. We're not aiming for sinless perfection, guys, because it's not achievable on this side of heaven. The truth is we all say things and do another. We can never live what we say all the time. We can't do it. But the way to pursue humility and to stave off pride, to help it get away, is to simply tell others and tell God, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? So when was, the, when was the last time you've apologized to somebody, honestly? Like, really apologized to them? When was the last time you said, hey, I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, should, I really should not have said that. No excuses, no, but this, 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 and this. Like, these, you did all these things, so that's why I did it. So it's your fault still. But when was the last time you really said, I'm sorry to somebody? When was the last time you said, you know what? I was wrong. You're right, and I was wrong. Will you forgive me? When was the last time you said that to your spouse or your roommate or your coworker or your boss or your subordinate? Repentance is not easy. It's also not a one-time act. We're going to celebrate a baptism today and. The reality is, Elliot's not done saying, I'm sorry, or forgive me. He's not done repenting after he practices baptism. The same is true for you. You weren't done repenting when you got baptized 30 years ago. Repentance isn't easy, but I think it's one of the biggest things that we are called to as Christians, to constantly live a life of repentance. It requires on to take on the humiliating position of being lowly, <laughs> of being in need. When I say I'm sorry, I'm putting myself in a vulnerable state. The person I'm apologizing to can go off on me, right? I'm the one that needs them to forgive me. But you see, hypocrisy and haughtiness, these things are dispelled when we pursue humility through repentance because it perpetually puts us in the place of Christ. Do you understand that? Every time we practice humility, when we practice repentance, real repentance, it puts us in the path of Christ, whose life is marked by humility. Philippians 2 shows us that. Verses 6 through 8, it says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble, hear that, humility, He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. Again, pursuing humility, pursuing downwardness. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It's a scriptural truth that if you remain hypocritical or haughty one way or another, you will be humbled. (laughs) But you have a choice in the matter. You can pursue repentance and pursue humility, or you can let God do it to you later. One of the commentators this week said exalting, looking at verse 11 and 12, he said exalting is God's business alone. (laughs) It's not your job to exalt yourself. That's not for you. Don't do it. 
The beauty, though, is that humbling ourselves is something that's a co-venture with God, right? Exaltation is God's job alone. You're not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to do that. But humbling ourselves, God invites us into. He says, let's do this together. One of us is going to humble you. (laughs) You probably don't want it to be me. Christian, if you're here today and you are a Christ follower, this, this text, even though it's about religious leaders, it's about me and Pastor James and the, the woes that we can get into, right? Even though it's about us, it's about all of us, really. It's about you too, right? Again, the issues of the heart are universal. Hypocrisy and haughtiness are universal, So we all together need to examine ourselves and ask where, not if, where am I being proud or hypocritical? (laughs) Not if, but where? And then we need to ask the Spirit, Holy Spirit, will you show me what it looks like to repent? Will you show me what it means to say I'm sorry to that coworker that I was harsh to? Will you show me what it means to repent to my spouse or my roommate for blowing up on them. (laughs) Look, the Christian life, it's not about sinless perfection, but the fine line that we, we straddle between hypocrisy and trying to pursue sinless perfection, that fine line is repentance. A genuine Christian who is, is still battling with sin naturally the inclination, the sinfulness of the heart will pop up. But in repentance, we need to humble ourselves to say, I'm sorry. Say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? (laughs) If you're here today and you're not a Christian, perhaps the very thing you hate about people like us is hypocrisy. And I'm, I'm with you. I hate it too. But the reality is the hypocrisy I hate in others, it, it's a hypocrisy I hate in myself. <laughs> it's easy to talk about other people and how hypocritical they are. That's an easy thing to do. It's a lot harder when I look at my own heart and say, oh, wow, like <laughs> I, I drastically outteach the way I live. That's a hard truth to, to grapple with. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm with you. The hypocrisy and pride that exists in the church, I hate it. (laughs) But it's everywhere. (laughs) We don't have the corner on hypocrisy here. I promise you that. I think the thing that we do have a corner on, though, is the one that can help us pursue humility. If you're not a Christian, the only way I would argue to get out of this cycle of hypocrisy and pride is to submit yourself to Christ. To say, Jesus, I I have been sinning my entire life. I've been trying to get out of this my entire life, but I'm done trying because I can't do it. Becoming a Christ follower is repenting one time to start repenting for a lifetime. It's turning away from our life of sin and saying, Jesus, I promise with your help, I'll follow you. That's for all of us. 
We all need to pursue humility and repentance, constantly submitting ourselves to Christ's lordship, following his way, his path of downward pursuit. Only in doing this can we really stave off hypocrisy and pride in our own heart and in our church. This Jesus that we worship, he had all the riches in heaven. And as we saw in Philippians 2, it says that he left those. He abandoned them for us and for our sake. Every week as Christians, we take a meal together called communion. If you'd like to participate in this meal with us, which is for um, baptized members, or not members, sorry, baptized Christians who consider themselves to be Christ followers. If you want to participate, there's individual cups. When we take this meal together, it's a reminder to us of the way of Jesus, that he did pursue humility for us and for our sake so that we could then pursue humility and repentance. He wasn't proud. He wasn't hypocritical. He never out-taught what he could do or practice. When we take this meal together, it's a reminder of the sacrifice that he made so that we too could be invited into a lifestyle of repentance. So when we take this meal together, it is an opportunity to examine our hearts, as Paul says, to ask Jesus, where do I need to repent right now? (laughs) When I walk out of here, who do I need to go say I'm sorry to? As Jesus' disciples were gathered together at the Last Supper, as he was preparing himself to go to the cross, the disciples, they took bread, or Jesus took bread, and he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. This time you can take and eat the bread. That same night, Jesus took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said to them, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, which seals the covenant. It's poured out for the forgiveness of many. Take and drink. Church, the Apostle Paul, he says that as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you modeled for us humility. That though you weren't haughty, you weren't proud, you weren't hypocritical, you still showed us the path of repentance. You, you humbled yourself. You lowered yourself for us. We thank you, Jesus, for your life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for your ascension because in that we have experienced your spirit being given to us. Spirit, we ask even now that you would work on our hearts, that you would help us to reflect and, and ask genuinely Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to go to others and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? We need you, Spirit, to soften our hearts. Help us 
to break up the, the plaque that's around our hearts, the hardness of our hearts, to be willing to, to follow the way of Jesus, to lower ourselves before others in humility. We pray all this in Jesus' name, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.